Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast where we're rereading the Aubrey Maturin novels in series. I'm Ian and I'm here together with Mike. And between us, we are partway through our reread at a slower pace of the first novel in the series, Master and Commander. So Mike, where in this book have we got to last week and where might we get to this week? Oh, thanks, Ian. Yeah, last week we we uh, read through chapter three, and in that, Jack and the Sophie started escorting their first convoy. The crew was broken up into new watches and cannon crews. Stephen and Dylan officially met one another, and, and each of them had various concerns about their shared past in the United Irishman. Uh, Moet described the ship to Stephen. Stephen and Jack both visited the lover's hole. We're always pleased to see them. And Jack upset Dylan with some ill-considered remarks about Irishmen and Papists. We heard about Dylan's great action in the dart and discussed sodomy over some tea without mm. milk. And we ended with the master and the purser debating whether the crew and standing officers will end up backing Jack Aubrey as captain. Oh, this time we dive into chapter four. We'll see the crew beat to quarters and have their first gunnery practice under Jack. There's great excitement in the convoy and some more gunnery lessons to be learned here. Jack reports to the Admiral, sees an old friend, gets a new assignment, and officially adds another warrant officer to the Sophie. And we close the chapter with the first of many O'Brien naval officer dinners. Hmm. Oh, there's, there's some really important scenes for us to set here in this chapter coming up, Mike, including but not only the dinner. And the the chapter opens with Jack taking the measure of his reorganized crew. It's got new people. He's got new gun crews. They've all got new responsibilities. And he's going to look at how they all perform as they beat to quarters, as they clear for action. And get ready as they're sailing along with a convoy to try their gunnery skills out. And we read a little bit in the text here about what was going through Jack's mind. It says, Jack had expected something of a shambles, but not anything quite so unholy as all this. But his native good humour and the delight of feeling even the inept stirring of this machine under his control overcame all other more righteous emotions. So, Mike, it, he's not overwhelmed with joy at how people are behaving here. Mike, the little quarter deck is full of people, but Stephen's in isolation there with Jack, and he even kind of muses about how it's almost like they're viewing the scene at a distance, almost like they themselves are dead. Stephen's never experienced what they call the silent Olympian majesty of the captain's part of the quarter deck that he now shares with Jack. And we talked a little bit about this passage when we were doing our Crossing the Line episode about just how they felt this isolation and this kind of otherworldliness viewing the rest of the crew from a distance like this. And Stephen is still making sense of the hierarchy and the discipline and, and who's accountable for what to whom. And he asks Jack if Mr. Marshall, that's the sailing master, could have Stephen whipped if Stephen were under naval discipline. Because so far, Stephen is just there as a guest. And Jack is really astounded by this remark. He says, Mr. Marshall's only the master. And he can't believe that even Stephen could confuse the chain of command. Jack says, my dear sir, I believe you must have been led astray by the words master and master and commander. Illogical terms, I must confess. The first is subordinate to the second. You must allow me to explain our naval ranks sometime. But in any case, 
you will never be flogged. No, no, you shall not be flogged, he added, gazing with pure affection and with something like awe at so magnificent a prodigy, at an ignorance so very far beyond anything that even his wide-ranging mind had yet conceived. And it's it's funny, anyway, because this is Jack really struggling to get alongside how Stephen views the world and how different that is from someone who's on the inside of the Navy. But also we've got all this... Jack's taking another shot at explaining another part of the complex terminology that Stephen's surrounded with here. We did ropes and spars last chapter now Stephen is having to learn his way around all the roles and responsibilities and rights and wrongs of it all i think this is probably fair since we're talking here about hierarchy and terminology in the navy and back in chapter two we spent quite a long time talking about hierarchy and terminology in nature so is Stephen going to get a look in here or is this chapter going to be all about the navy and how they fare let's just see well, the hands finally find their places and the great gun exercise begins. Jack quickly realizes that the crew has only ever fired full broadsides at the languid pace of the slowest gun on each side rather than firing individually in heated combat as fast mm. as they could possibly go. You know, Jack just really wishes that he could buy more gunpowder because he knows that they need lots more live practice. But he decides that even though he's below his complement on powder, he's going to use some of his small gunpowder allowance, you know, to, to try these things out. He knows that these guns probably haven't been fired for real in a long time, and he knows that they need some more practice. And in addition to kind of the rationality here, um, O'Brien writes that Jack, saying about Jack, he added in a voice within his inner voice, a voice from a far deeper level, think of the lovely smell. So we know that Jack not only has a <laughs> rational mind about this, but uh, you know, somewhere deep down, that smell of napalm in the morning. Uh, yeah. wrong, wrong illusion. But uh, Jack thinking, God, I love the smell of cannon fire here, right? So Jack has Moet be sure to carefully time each gun crew. He wants to find out how quickly can they individually get from you know firing once to firing again. Um well, as they get started, you know, a powder horn is missing from one cannon, another one, you know, they drop the cannonball while they're trying to load it and, and sort of haphazardly chase it across the deck. Several cannons have, you know, wet powder or old things lying in them. They don't fire. And the firing time, the time between shots is over three minutes. It's the worst that Jack has ever seen. You know, he thinks about it as archaic or antediluvian here. <laughs> Um, it's great isn't it i mean at the same time as steven is observing this and we're we're being taught some of the maneuverings of what what the breaching tackle does and what the sponger does and what the loader does and what the you know how the cartridges are loaded and stuff at the same time as jack is learning how the crew performs we're all learning a little bit about the gunnery and we mentioned this when we were with uh, john and steve doing the cinephiles review a few months ago if if this was if Tony Scott has shot this the same as he shot the opening sequence of Top Gun aboard the aircraft carrier, you know, if it was that kind of a, a movie shot, this would all be done in slow motion and the crew would all be looking very kind of macho and they'd have immaculate haircuts and there'd be a sunset behind and everything would be done in, you know, evocative slow motion. But as it is, this this is close as we're going to get to now for a little bit of naval gunnery porn action here for all you gunnery fans. <sighs> and... Even so, this is not smooth, well-oiled practice like aboard the deck of an aircraft carrier. This is this is not going well. And Mike, 
it's absorbing their attention and it's absorbing certainly Jack's attention is looking at just how stumbling their performance is. But while all this is going on, all is not well with the convoy, right? No, no, it's not. As the Sophie turns around, it, it, it wants to practice the guns on the other side of the ship and, and wants to do so without accidentally firing a cannonball into the convoy. Stephen takes that pause to, you know, to have the audacity to speak to the captain on the quarterdeck and says, pray tell me why those ships are so very close together. Are they conversing, rendering each other mutual assistant? And, and Jack turns and he sees that one of the convoy ships, a Norwegian cat, the Dorta Engelbrecht Stata, and if, if and I'll, I'll say if I'm hearing Patrick Tall correctly, you know, um, although I grew up a good Lutheran boy, my Norwegian <laughs> is no good. I can't do the accents <laughs> or any of that. But, you know, it's being attacked by an Algerine quarter galley. And, you know, they realize, oh, my gosh, you know, we're sitting here. One of our convoy ships is is being attacked here. Jack gives orders to turn the ship around and to sail swiftly in pursuit. And luckily, the Sophies are much better with the sails than with the guns. Uh, Moet runs up into the rigging and looking ahead, also realizing the uh, the lookout has not done a credible job here, scans the horizon and sees another sail a Latin due east of the convoy. So potentially another enemy ship approaching the convoy kind of from another direction here. <sighs> and it's, it's, it's a pretty tense moment here. There are a couple of little definitions going on here that we should just dig into for a second. A cat, it's a little bit unclear what kind of a ship a cat is, but there's a kind of three-masted cargo vessel um, common in the North Sea and the Baltic, which would go along with it having a Norwegian name um, that's a cat. Um a quarter galley is uh, a galley, that is to say, a ship propelled mainly by oars, but with a sailing rig as well. Quarter meaning that it's a little smaller than a half-size one. So it's a sort of little fast, nimble, I mean, a typical pirate ship for that end of the Mediterranean. Um, as we know, propelled by galley slaves, and that comes into Jack's considerations a little bit later on. But Mike, I've got a feeling there's an even deeper hole that we can dig here behind this name, Dorte Engelbrechtsdatter. Do we find anything out when we when we go searching about that? You know, it's 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 so easy to just sort of roll past these. Oh, it's the name yeah. of the ship. Oh, you know, and then you think, oh, maybe O'Brien's having a little play on words here like he sometimes does. But what we find out is that this is a woman's name. This Dorothy, as, as you know, we would say in English, uh, was a Norwegian author. Uh, uh, she wrote hymns and poems. You know, she lived from 1634 to 1716. Um, she was she was married to a rector. Her writings were strongly religious, wildly popular. And her writing was also kind of a defense of female creative power. It, it gave hmm. rise to the first debate in Denmark and Norway about the ability of a woman to write literature. She you know, she was seen by the king. She was given, you know, met the top male poet of the age there in the Nordic. She was given kind of a lifetime tax exempt status for her contributions. And she's been characterized as Norway's first recognized female author, as well as perhaps her, you know, Norway's first feminist before, you know, feminism was even recognized here. So, you know, just another time when, you know, here is Patrick O'Brien dropping a little hit, and we'll see this throughout the canon, these incredible women uh, of their times yeah. that just kind of get popped in here and there. Yeah. And it's a really, really great 
uh, sort of counterpoint to the to the general feeling that you might get when you read this first book that it's mostly a boy's story and that it's mostly about right. m- men doing martial military things. Actually, even though there aren't any strong female characters, we've got this really nice pointer towards where O'Brien sees feminism and gender and all the rest of it. Perhaps, Mike, perhaps he's going to open up on the subject of, uh, of women playing an active role in the story, maybe later on in the books. I don't know. Let's see. Yes. Anyhow, um, the other thing that we notice now is this radical change that's taken place in Jack and also in James Dillon. And also, I think, in the rest of the crew. And we're seeing them through Stephen's eyes. And through Stephen's eyes, Jack seems to be twice his normal size. The text points out that he's got luminous blue eyes, a continuous smile. The Sophie herself, with all of these sales and studying sales, appears to have doubled in size. Stephen can see Jack and Dylan saying to each other how lucky they are, which is kind of an odd thing. To, they've kind of stumbled across the fact that their their escorting of the convoy hasn't been great to the extent that this pirate ship basically has crept into the convoy. But they're super happy that it's turned out this way. Even the gunner comes on deck as pistols and cutlasses are handed out for boarding. The whole crew seems to be enthusiastic about going into battle. And we learn as well, as the gunner comes up on deck, that the gunner's pretty happy to have been cured of whatever it was uh, by Dr. Maturin. We're going to find out more later. Um, And meanwhile, therefore, the guns are all warmed and all run out. And Jack is wondering to himself why this galley would row upwind from wherever it was before to try to snatch the cap with the escorting sloop so close by. He's not pleased with the lookout and mentions that there's going to be a flogging punishment on the horizon for this particular lookout. But he's thankful that Stephen had spotted her. And there's a theme, I think, in this chapter, Mike, of Stephen getting praised. The gunner gives some praise to Stephen again, especially for the cure, and heads off to the magazine to fill more powder. I love it. As you, as you say, Ian, you know, Stephen's getting a lot of attention here, even in the midst <laughs> of action and everything else. So, you know, Jack turns to Stephen and asks if he'd like to go below or or perhaps even join the sharpshooters up in the tops. And as, as Jack says, have a bang at the villains. And Stephen says, no, he deprecates the violence and he'd prefer to heal rather than to kill or at least to kill with kindly intent. <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes people die under his knife, but he doesn't mean to hurt them. Right. So uh, you know, he asked Jack if he can actually take his station in the cockpit to treat the wounded. And, and Jack and the crew are all delighted and very reassured. You know, Jack didn't want to ask his guests to do this, but he's, you know, he's over the top that Stephen's going to do that and says, you know, how much it means to everybody. Stephen goes down, you know, we get this description about how dark and secluded it is. So he's <laughs> got to bring in an additional lamp. And, and Stephen is quickly flipping through all these medical reference books that, uh, you know, he's been given by Flory. Um, and then ask when Jack comes to check on him, if he can also have the room next door. He's, he's a little worried that it's going to upset the patients if he's standing there looking on the how-to book as he's, <laughs> as he's trying to do surgery. Um, the, the funny thing is he asked Jack in Latin so that the Loblolly boy doesn't understand it. But, you know, Jack blows by the Latin because he doesn't know. But it's like, yes, 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 whatever you want. And, and Jack's mind is elsewhere, too. It's like he's happy. Stephen can have everything he wants. And he tells Stephen, well, we shall board, meaning, you know, they're going to board this galley if ever we can come up with them. And then, you know, they may try to board us. There's no telling. These damned Aldrines are usually crammed with men. Cutthroat dogs, every one of them, he added, laughing heartily and vanishing into the gloom. And I, you know, I can't help but wonder what Stephen makes of this. You know, obviously, 
the situation sounds like it's getting a little bit more and more ominous and dangerous and everything. And everybody is getting happier and laughing abundantly. It's something. Yeah, and Stephen's in a very different world. Yeah, even though he's got the familiarity of the surgical instruments and stuff around him, it, I, it's pretty clear, I think, that this is all seen from his gaze, and he's not really sure what to make of it. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, we're, we're back up on deck with the action, if you like. Um, the Algerines take the cat, and it's, it was pretty much inevitable at this stage that this would happen because, let's say, you know, if the surprise was half a mile, quarter of a mile away, it would have taken a... You know, not just a minute or two, but several tens of minutes to get turned around and head off in the direction of where this action was taking place. The galley, meanwhile, sails towards the Sophie to engage her or maybe slow her up until the prize crew that they've put aboard the cat can get her far enough away. And when Sophie's closed the distance to 200 yards, then the galley starts firing. And Mike, I, I love the fact that the galley is referred to as reptilian. It's given this little... Uh, what's the word I would use? Animalification by O'Brien. That is the same word that O'Brien used to talk about the hostile gaze that Stephen has of somebody else when his uh, his blood is up. So this reptilian galley starts firing, and Jack tells Mister Richards, the clerk, who is now pale and clearly you know, anxious with bulging eyes, tells him to carefully note the time because that's the job of the captain's clerk in action. Jack wishes once again that he had his long 12s back to fire back at these 18-pounders that the galley is using. The Sophie turns 45 degrees off of her course to fire and is hit in the side. And we start to take hits, we start to take injuries. Stephen below has to sew up a spouting artery from a splinter wound and the galley is firing again and again and it spins using its oars to present a smaller target to the Sophie. I might, we're, we're, we're straight into action here. But By the way, let's just enjoy this moment. This is, what is it, chapter four? And we're many, many tens of pages in to this allegedly naval historical fiction book. And now, at least, we've got some action. The galley fires again, and this this time a shot drops a heavy lump of wood from, I think it was from the foremast truck from the very top of this mast onto the gunner's head just as he comes up through the main hatchway. And by the way, Mike, this this scene of somebody putting their head up through a hatch and then getting walloped on the head with falling wood debris is used pretty directly in the opening action of the movie Master and Commander Far Side of the World, except that it was Jack Aubrey slash Russell Crowe who was knocked senseless by the flying wood, and the consequences are a bit less severe for Russell Crowe than they are for the gunner, but we'll hear more about that in a second. And Mike, one more thing about the authenticity here. I love how this part of the action, while they're sailing in towards the galley, is just all about taking hits and absorbing the injuries. It's very authentic that what you had to do at the beginning of an action was endure fire and show stoicism and courage before you could maneuver yourself in a position where you could dish it out. Um, And interestingly, Jack doesn't make a big deal out of it. Dylan doesn't make a big deal out of it. None of the crew is saying, ooh, we need to hold fast here. They're just taking it. And this crew might be conservative when it comes to seamanship. They might be slow about their guns, but they've certainly got some physical courage and some some steadfastness here. You know, they they really do. And, and and we're seeing, you know, kind of a little bit of what was going through Jack's head. He's got these much smaller, shorter range cannons and armaments against, you know, these these bigger long range cannons. So to your point, you know, they're just gonna have to sail in to be effective at all. And that, you know, it it never ceases to amaze me reading about war and battle in any setting 
you know, about how often this has to happen. Those, you know, the troops sort of, you know, walking up the hill into fire, these ships kind of waiting to hold. It does, as you say, sound very, very authentic. Well, Jack tries to change course in order to, to fire while the galley is kind of straight across and a, and a nice vulnerable target. But the guns are mishandled and they're too slow. And by the time they fire, you know, the galley is speeding away to the southwest and the cat continues to run to the southeast. So these, you know, they're, you know, they've got a ship taken that's headed one way, uh, the galley headed off another way. And Jack, you know, remembering that he's still got the ring bolts for those long 12 pounders up there, has them move a cannon into uh, the bows, you know, to use as a chaser. And and he continues after the galley. Huh. So, uh, and by the way, Mike, th- this idea of Jack's ship being in a stern chase and, you know, sighting a gun in the bows, this is going to be something that we'll come back to again and again. Um, as this chase is going on, Jack sees that the galley is so far unharmed by their fire. They've been aiming, remember, at her rigging. They've been trying not to hit the galley slaves at the oars, who we presume are Christians. And as everybody else has been braving fire and there have been splinter wounds and injuries, Jack is not immune. His head jerks sideways as a musket ball from the galley nicks his ear and it starts pouring blood. And straight away, Jack is totally not going to make a big deal out of this injury. He calls for a handkerchief. He kind of calls for an old coat so that he doesn't bleed all over his nice new epaulette. And he continues to admire the galley's gunnery. And Mike, you could almost say that this whole chapter is Jack realizing and reinforcing to to himself the value of well-trained, accurate, steadfast gunnery, but it's Mm -hmm. aimed at him rather than being dished out by him. In sailing terms, though, the Sophie is starting to gain on the galley. The crew is cheering about that. Dylan is delighted that they're gaining. And we hear a little bit about Dylan's attitude here. Although he spoke quietly, there was an extraordinarily fierce exultation in his voice. He had been shockingly upset by Stephen's sudden appearance. And although his innumerable present duties had kept him from much consecutive thought, the whole of his mind, apart from its immediate forefront, was filled with unvoiced concern, distress, and dark, incoherent nightmare shadows. He looked forward to the turmoil on the galley's deck with a wild longing. I mean, we've got this idea of Dylan as this real tortured soul, but looking for some kind of catharsis from action, looking for some kind of release. And I wonder if we might come back to this feature of his character in later chapters. Well, you know, while Dylan's longing to be boarding the galley and, you know, slashing people left and right, Jack's looking through his glass and he realizes that the galley is spilling her wind. And, you know, Ian, you might touch on this for the listeners spilling her wind yeah so she's easing some of the ropes that control the sails just to take some of the speed off the boat but doing it in such a way that it doesn't look like the sails are flapping so they're kind of handicapping the performance of the sails without making it look like that to give the deceptive appearance that they're chasing hard when in fact they're taking their time nice Nice. probably not the first time that an enemy of Jack's is going to use some kind of a lame duck ruse. So we can stick a pin in that thought for later on as well. There you go. Well, Jack says this and, you know, he gives his glass to Dylan. So he can look and Dylan is very upset about this. You know, he, he doesn't like that. And the galley continues to fire. Uh, another cannon shot tears through Sophie's lower stunning sails. And the lookout reports that that other strange sail that they saw is now much closer and headed for the front of the convoy. 
So mm. the, the Jack prepares to aim this cannon that they've moved here. He's aiming at the galley, and, and he actually sets off the shot himself, aims it, sets it up, fires it, and the shot tears a hole in the galley's mainsail. It's the first time a shot of theirs has touched the galley. Um, you know, the crowd is thrilled about this. And, and Jack's there kind of considering this situation. And we hear a classic line from the canon, Ian, about a wound on the Sophie. You you deliver this one so well. Well, I, I'll just say it as it is. Yeah. John Lakey's copped it something cruel in the bollocks, says one of his one of his crewmates. And I, I, I really love this. We're getting first of all, we've been in the headspace of Jack and Dylan and Stephen so far. We've been with the officer class, and I love the fact that just in case we're getting too um, enamoured of the gallantry and high flutin perspective of the officers, we get the voice of an unseen lower deck sailor talking about some of the hits and the strokes that people are taking here. Um, John Lakey's been hit in the uh, in the gentleman's area, and uh, I'm sure that's going to be uncomfortable for him. Ouch! Ouch! <laughs> and and meanwhile, Jack confirms that the Algerine is indeed spilling her wind, and we get this explained in a little bit more detail for us. He's realizing that she could leave the slower Sophie for dead any time. She's kind of drawing the Sophie out. She's pretending so that perhaps she can later turn and capture the Sophie. At a distance from the cat, a distance from the convoy, um, with her oars, because she, as the galley, is, is not dependent on the wind. She's tactically doing quite a smart thing to try and tease the convoy escort away from the convoy. Um, that will set her consort free, this other Latin rigged ship, um, to capture a few more ships in the convoy. And Jack starts to see one of the tough decisions he's going to have to make here as a commander. Although everybody's blood is up and they want to chase this pirate. It's actually his duty to go back and rescue the cat and save the convoy. So he stops and the firing stops and they turn back to go after the cat. But Mike, not everybody's quite on board with this, are they? No, 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 no. You know, Jack sees this really strong look on Dylan's face. He's, you know, O'Brien tells us he's either very angry or worse. And it's clear that he bitterly disagrees with Jack's decision. Um, Jack orders one last barrage of shots, you know, before they're gone. And, and you know, he does this to surprise the galley because it looks like she's she's going. But boy, as she's turning, you know, he aims for the captain's cabin behind the rowers um, and he fires as the Sophie comes around. Uh, he fires every cannon in the broadside, every musket. And they hit the galley hard. There's a hole in her side. The people were running around. The cannons dismounted. Um and and the people are thrilled, you know, because they 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 can see that they've done some damage. But you know, as O'Brien says, that you know the miracle hasn't happened. They haven't knocked her rudder away. They haven't holed her beneath the water line. However, they've inflicted enough damage that she's not going to be trouble immediately to the Sophie. So the Sophie's free to to go back and you know perform her duty as Jack sees it. Yeah. So we have this hiatus in the action. As we're, in Jack's point of view, up on deck, we get to go down below. Um, Jack goes below to check on Stephen and tells him that the battle hasn't started again, that they've just fired a shot across the cat's bows and that the prize crew has surrendered. Dylan's taking a boat across to secure the ship. And Stephen says that he's amazed at the damage being done to people's bodies by these flying splinters. And Jack says, yeah, an oak splinter can really cut you up. Um, Stephen's got two members of the crew dead, um, his patients are all in good shape except for the gunner who's taken his blow on the head. 
And Jack says, well, hold on, I, I thought you cured him. And Stephen says, no, 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 no. What I cured him of was his constipation caused by him overindulging in Peruvian bark. What he's got now is a, a fractured skull. He's got a cranial fracture. Stephen's going to have to trepan. He's going to have to saw the top off this guy's head in first light tomorrow to save him. And Jack experiences one of the other downsides of being in command, which is that he sees and, and feels for himself the, the human cost of his crew being in action like this. Yeah. I might, this Peruvian bark is interesting for anybody who's ever drunk a gin and tonic. Uh, bark from the cinchona tree or the fever tree contains quinine, which is still sort of accepted. There's a bit of a, a, a prophylaxis against malaria. Gin and tonic offers you a tasty and sort of palatable way of administering some quinine to yourself to get that malaria kept at bay. We're going to hear more about Peruvian bark or Jesuit's bark in the canon. It's going to be a staple of some of you know, Stephen's medicine chests to come, I think. Yeah. Well, on deck, the master reports that the moors on the cat have surrendered. You know, they, they fired a shot across her bow. But even though they had surrendered, you know, when Dylan's party gets across, you know, there's clearly some fighting on deck here. Um, and, and we have a theme which becomes very familiar in the canon, unique geographical dialects. And Ian, you know, I couldn't do this one even half justice. <laughs> well, this is the beginning of a bit of a trope for Patrick O'Brien, which he likes sometimes taking the rise out of certain regional accents. And one of the ones that he always has in his sights here is the Scottish regional accent. And we learn a little bit about the master. They're carrying on very old fashioned aboard the cat, sir said the master as Jack reached the quarter deck. The master came from some far northern part of Orkney, El Shetland, and either that or a natural defect in his speech caused him to pronounce his er as ar, a peculiarity that grew more marked in times of distress. It looks as though those infernal buggers were cutting their capers again, sir. Nice. And at, at the end of the last episode, we promised ourselves more capers, and here we are, capering for all, but capers. Yeah, and, and luckily it's the enemy's capers, not Jack's. Exactly. <laughs> well, Jack takes a boarding party across to the cat. You know, the idea is to, you know, to kind of reinforce Dylan. But when he arrives there, Dylan is essentially protecting the five moors from Alfred King, that tongueless seaman who had joined with Mr. Richards. Yes. And Dylan says he believes the prisoners attack King below deck. And, you know, Jack asks King, you know, is that what happened? And, and King, who can't speak, just glares about while King's mates are holding King and his, you know, who's still gripping tightly his boarding axe back. And that, you know, Jack asks the two sailors, Williams and Kelly, and they both look very glassy. They're kind of, you know, kind of looking elsewhere. And they're telling Jack they they really have no idea what happens. Um and then Dylan kind of intercedes, telling Jack that, you know, that the Moors had thrown the Norwegians overboard. And that kind of derails the earlier conversation because Jack is just aghast at all the savagery that's it happened here. So, you know, they, they gather the prisoners, they send them over to the Sophie and, and Jack tells Dylan that he's going to have to sail the cat, uh, you know, essentially along with the rest of the convoy until they arrive at their destination here. And Ian, you you helped me here. I've always kind of wondered a little bit what the heck happened here. You know, uh, King was attacked and everything else, and uh, you know, I, I think you sussed it. 
Well, maybe King was attacked, or maybe King happened to find himself as part of the party going back aboard the cat to retake it. And maybe he found himself face to face with some of the same kinds of people who cut out his tongue of of still recent memory. And uh, maybe he just let fly. And for me, it's the fact that we get this kind of glassy, oh, don't know, sir, from the other seaman. Like, I think in the, as far as the lower deck guys are concerned, this is natural justice for King. And if he's taken a few heads off, um, then they think that that's okay and they're not going to rat him out. Um, but clearly there's, there's, there's two kinds of savagery here. There's the prospect that the pirates have thrown the Norwegians overboard. That's pretty horrific. But there's also King taking his revenge in bloody fashion on the Moorish pirates. Huh. So re- returning back to the Sophie, amidst all of this reflection on savagery and bloodlust, um, Jack's mind reasonably readily turns to other topics here. And he's beginning to think, well, okay. If the pirates had taken the Norwegian cat, then she's not a rescue. She's a prize. Um, Looks at all the damage that's been done to the Sophie from the short battle and realizes to himself that this is an example of what superior gunnery can do. And so he's got this little reflection on I really need to get better at my gunnery, but also a reflection on maybe we've just looked our way into a bit of a prize here. And he calculates in his mind the value of the cat's cargo, which he thinks is about three or four thousand pounds. And meanwhile, the bosun shows Jack what had injured the gunner, this great big lump of wood. And Jack, who's in, in pretty sanguine mood, I think, now that he's been thinking about Prasma, he says, oh, no, don't you worry about that. The doctor will take care of him. Dr. Matron, he says, he's going to do something prodigious clever with a saw as soon as there is light. Uh, something uncommonly skillful, I dare say. And we get this nice little moment here, starting to see that the crew really appreciate having Stephen Matron aboard. Um, Mr. Watt says the men are really pleased with Matcherin's great work, sawing off Ned Evans's leg so trim, sewing up John Lakey's private parts so neat, especially given that he's just a visitor. And they're really, really feeling obliged to Stephen here. Yeah. Well, this, you know, this train of thought continues on, on both sides here. In, in his cabin, Jack, you know, and I think Jack feels a little bit guilty, but he just can't help himself. You know, he's continuing to calculate what would his share of the cat's prize money be? You know, first he's doing it in his mind and then he, he kind of, you know, begrudgingly grabs a, a piece of paper and a pencil and, and is a little embarrassed, you know, when, when somebody comes knocking on his door there. But O'Brien tells us that actually every man on the ship is attempting to do the same. Every man on the ship is thinking, hmm, what's my share of this prize with the cat? Because, like, as you say, she's a prize, not a rescue anymore. There's no crew on her. You know, the enemy had taken control. And, and the carpenter, Mr. Lamb, comes in to report about the water in the well and the repairs. But before he leaves, he tells Jack that the warrant officers, the, the bosun, the carpenter, the master's mace, have discussed this. And they want Dr. Matron to be cut in on their one-eighth share of the prize money as he would be if he were the official surgeon. Uh, as, as Lamb says, it's an acknowledgement of his conduct, considered to be very handsome by all hands. And this, oh. is, this is a great reception for Stephen. Boy, you know, the crew clearly sees the benefit here of having an actual physician who is also a good surgeon aboard. And, and I suspect in many ways, Matron's pretty easy for them to like. 
you know, he's a brilliant physician and a naturalist and, and a bit of kind of a mascot lover for them to take care of here. <laughs> and as, as this is going on, young Babington comes in to report that the cat is signaling. Wow. With signals coming from across the sea here, we're all about to feel pretty cozy and happy and confident in the fact that Stephen is doing a great job and Jack is totting up his prize money. Uh, Maybe we should just uh, step indoors for a second and tot up our own pile of prize money. We will be right back with you after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. So I hope your accounts are up to date. Let's see, carry the four at a zero. (laughs) Well, you know. We get back to the action here and the Sophie pulls alongside the cat or as close as it can. And and Dylan and Jack are hollering back and forth to each other, having a little bit of a hard time understanding. So they're hollering louder and louder. And Dylan is reporting that the Norwegians are all safe, that they'd hid in a secret spot in the forepeak. And, and O'Brien has this kind of almost a comic scene of, in the forepeak, they're safe. And the crew is very noticeably upset. And, and Jack hears some of their words and then the guy kind of, uh, you know, messing up the steering, which he hollers at him about, you know, because they're upset about this. Because all of this means that the cat is no longer a prize and just a rescue. And therefore, there's no prize money for anyone. I think everybody in their minds has already spent this money and now it's gone. And to add kind of insult to injury, Dylan says that the cat's master requests that the Sophie send over her surgeon to help a crewman who hurt his toe rushing down the ladder. Well, <laughs> Jack hollers, he said, in a voice that can be heard all the way to Calgary, all the way to you know where they're sailing to. You tell the master from me, cried Jack, is face purple with the effort and furious indignation. Tell the master that he can take his man's toe and, and in my Kindle edition, there's a little dash here. He can <laughs> dash with it. Uh, you know, And it says he's stumped below 875 pounds, the poor and looking thoroughly sour and disagreeable. And <laughs> Ian, you mentioned bolderization and, yeah. and, and the, the Patrick O'Brien text by various publishers last time. And so, you know, with my Kindle version from you know Norton in the U.S. with this dash here, I realized the difference when I listened to Patrick Tall reading this this week. You know, the word he used in place of the dash reminded me of the firm French Connection UK's initial, which I see on their <laughs> stores you know, when I'm over your side of the pond here. Yeah, I, I didn't know that Tull had uh, had actually properly called out the word. I think that's great. Well done, Patrick Tull. <laughs> <laughs> and this is almost perennial fodder for discussion groups as well. When and why, and you know, with what significance does Patrick O'Brien sometimes, you know, dash out curse words, and in what situations does he sometimes spell them out for us? And maybe it's that you know, officers get a dash, and lower deck guys get the the, the word spelled out, but that's not consistently applied either. There's loads of fun speculation that you can have about how and when he does that, because O'Brien is absolutely not 
um, afraid of shocking us and, and being really direct with the language, but he's playing with us, I think, a little bit about the, the social mores of, of us and of the people of the time. We're about to zip ahead in time here. So I'll just, just pause here and say, we're done now with this little action aboard the Sophie and the cat and the convoy and the Corsairs. And we've been in real time, almost minute by minute, yeah, ever, ever since that day that James Dillon woke up and started shaving, we've been in pretty much in real time with the crew as everything has gone on and gone past us here. But now time skips ahead, and we're probably many weeks further ahead as we turn to a new scene still in the same chapter, and enough time has passed that it says Jack's sour and disagreeable expression has been replaced by natural cheerfulness. As he's getting aboard his cutter, one of the ship's boats, to sail to visit Admiral Keith's ship, Audacious, off of Genoa, where his ships are bombarding the French. And by the way, this means that they've also done at least two convoys and they've been to Cagliari, they've been to Leghorn, which is known to the modern Italians as Livorno. Um, So life has been good, presumably, but perhaps a little bit on the boring side for Jack as he's been doing convoy duty. Nevertheless, the thought of seeing Lord Keith, who's a, a real person, the real Admiral of the Blue, the real Commander-in-Chief of the Mediterranean Station, um, this thought leaves him grave and nervous. And Lord Keith, there's an important clue about Lord Keith here in his surname. His born surname is Elphinstone, which is a good Scottish name. He had become an Admiral, we learned in 1801, which is a tiny bit ahead of where we are on the timeline, but never mind. Commanded the Mediterranean from 1799 to 1803 he had succeeded the famous jervis lord st vincent um and at that time was the superior of horatio nelson keith had had some prize money disputes when all three of them were together in the med Um, he was considered a really sound leader in the royal navy and a great administrator and certainly not averse to a pound or two of prize money as we learned from the patrick o'brien muster book and maybe that's on his mind as he thinks about encouraging Jack with the mission that's coming up next. Anyhow, that's all in the future. Jack's there in the cabin. He's waiting to meet Lord Keith. And he is surprised to see in the cabin the back of a young woman. She turns and says, oh, Jackie, dear. He calls her old Queenie, gives her a great big hug. And as the text says, a most affectionate smacking kiss. The Admiral walks in. His eyes are shooting sparks of rage. He says, I'm going I'm to try and say this in nothing quite like the right accent. God damn and blast a lugget corpus Sweeney in his furious Scotch voice. Uh, this is Elphinstone, Admiral Lord Keith, walking in on Jack Aubrey, kissing Keith's wife. Huh. So first of all, because of the time of year that we are, I should say, a belated happy Burns night to all of our Scots listeners who are listening and rolling their eyes at all this terrible kind of cod Scottish dialogue. Um, Luggett Corpus Sweeney doesn't appear to be a real piece of Scots dialect at all. You know, Robbie Burns never wrote anything remotely like this, as far as we can tell. The the internet has, has played long and hard with this idea, and we don't think it's it's got anywhere. But we learn that we're in the real world here of Admiral Lord Keith, a real person, and Queenie, who we've already met, who really was Keith's wife. She says, this is the young man I told you about, patting poor pale Jack's black stock into place and waving a ring at him. I used to give him his bath and take him into my bed when he had bad dreams. This might not have been thought the very best possible recommendation to a newly married admiral of close on 60, but it seemed to answer. Oh, said the admiral. Yes, I was forgetting. Forgive me. 
I have such a power of captains, and some of them are very mere rakes. And I, I love the line, but it, it's really great to, to be thinking about Queenie again. I might, we can dig even deeper into the history of this Lady Queenie, right? We can. Lady Keith Hester Marie Thrall Elphinstone, Viscountess Keith, you know, uh, was nicknamed Queenie. You know, her mother was a diarist, Helen Thrall, and, and later uh, remarried and, and changes her last name. But her mother as a diarist had a great friend, Dr. Samuel Johnson. And Johnson was actually the one that gave Queenie this nickname because she was such an imperious youth and also a phenomenal Latin and Greek scholar as a youth. Um, she did, in fact, become Lord Keith's second wife. But there's a little anachronism, which you can point out to us, you know, which I love. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they got married in 1808, whereas this book is taking place in 1800-1801. But right. I, I, think, I think we can forgive that. We can. And, you know, we know O'Brien takes this stuff so seriously. You know, he'll tell us when he's going to change the harvest or when yeah. a commander's posting's <laughs> different. I'm sure he was aware of this as well. But it's great. And and it's clear that this family is something that O'Brien has, has mined pretty richly in his writings. Um, one of Lady Keith's daughters, one of Queenie's daughters, Augusta, married into the Villers family, a name huh. we'll hear again. Uh, Queenie had a sister named Cecilia and another sister named Sophia. Again, names we'll hear again. And she had a sister, Susanna, who it's said in, in an autobiography by Mary Hyde of this family, lived in sin with a Mr. Wells in an Ashgrove cottage in Kent. So, again, mm. stick a pin in all those names or our thanks uh, back out to the Pratchett Grove by Muster book, as well as, as Mary Hyde's history of the thralls. Great stuff. Every time you look for the real connection behind the characters and situations, we find all this fascinating stuff. Meanwhile, back aboard the Sophie, Jack is actually recounting this conversation. This whole dialogue between Admiral Keith and Queenie and Jack is actually being reported to us after the event secondhand. Jack is passing it on to Stephen. And Jack is pretty sure, as he's describing this to Stephen, that Lord Keith had recognised Jack from the three times that he'd seen him before. Years earlier, to begin with, Captain Elphinstone, as he was then, had come aboard a, a ship right after Jack had been turned before the mast, disrated as a punishment, disrated from midshipman to a common sailor, because he, Jack, had been keeping a black girl in the cable tier named Sally. But the girl was named Sally, not the cable tier. Yeah. Right. And in addition, there was an incident involving a dish of stolen tripe, and there were lapses in discipline and difficulty getting up in the morning. And for all of these reasons, Jack had been disrated to being a common deckhand. He was grateful, he said, for the six months that he had been in this position because he'd learned to understand the lower deck, something that he couldn't have got as a midshipman. The second time was when Jack was fifth of the Hannibal, serving under a first lieutenant called Carol, who Jack said was no seaman. And there had been this disagreement between them about a point of discipline. And Jack had called out Carol over this. Carol went to the captain, who told Jack to apologize. Jack wouldn't apologize because in his mind he hadn't done anything wrong. And Lord Keith was one of the admirals and post-captains who reprimanded Jack for petulance. So a sort of semi-official rebuke in front of a panel of captains, not a court-martial, hold that thought, but a semi-official rebuke by a bunch of senior officers, including Elphinstone slash Lord Keith. And there was a third time that Lord Keith had come across Jack Aubrey, but we, we, we don't get into that one. 
Jack wonders in passing how it can be that people who are damn fools and no seamen and have no interest can possibly reach post rank. But he reflects that he, Jack, has served under two such men. And Mike, there are some very, very long-term references that are set running here. Um, those of us who have already read up to the reverse of the medal will know that the Dish of Tripe was an incident that rankled for a while between Jack and another officer named Ghoul, which we'll come back to. And that the story of Sally in the Cable Tier was a whole other chapter in Jack's history that we'll get back to another time. Being turned before the mast, though, as an ordinary seaman is something that's going to get mentioned as a, as a really valuable and kind of foundational part of Jack's backstory many, many, many times in the canon. Absolutely. Well, after this official reprimand, you know, Jack thought his career was over. He's, you know, he, he makes a mangled reference to Hamlet to try to describe his feelings. You know, he's, he's kind of turned onto the beach. He's, he's no longer on a ship. And O'Brien writes in Jack's words, I really thought I was dished at the time. Career finished, cut down. Alas, poor Boric. <laughs> a little <laughs> Aubreyism here. I yep. spent eight months on shore as melancholy as that chap in the play (laughs) the moody dane (laughs) that's right you know and he says you know he would go up to town whenever he could which was not often and and hanging about in that damned waiting room in the admiralty i really thought i should never get to see again half pay lieutenant for the rest of my life and he says that it's only his fiddle and fox hunting when he could get a horse that kept him from hanging himself and and he reminisces that that's actually that Christmas was the last time that he had seen Queenie, except for maybe one time in London. Um, he tells Stephen that that Queenie was Jack's next door neighbor. She was 10 years older than him and that she practically raised him after his mother died, that he'd spent more time at her house than he did at his own. Um, Jack asked Stephen if he knows Dr. Johnson, Dictionary Johnson. And, and there's a really interesting response here, as only Stephen can do. You know, he's, he, <laughs> Stephen says, well, he thinks Dr. Johnson is one of the most respectful, amiable of the moderns, but he disagrees with everything Johnson says, except about Ireland. But he loves Johnson's <laughs> life of savage. And then, and I'll quote O'Brien here, Stephen tells Jack that Johnson occupied the most vivid dream I ever had in my life. Not a week ago. How strange you should mention him today. And, you know, for the life of me, I don't know where that's coming from, but I thought uh-huh. it was fascinating. Jack tells Stephen that Dr. Johnson was a friend of Queenie's family, which we know was true from the biography, before Queenie's mother remarried an Italian, a papist. Uh, and, and so then we get in this diatribe here about papists again. And Jack tells Stephen how that he and Queenie, you know, really rebelled here against papers burning, as he said, 13 guys in a row that year. You know, <laughs> and I can I can just see some of my friends here in the States saying, burning 13 guys in a row? What? <laughs> this doesn't mean like 13 guys, like right. these guys. You're talking about burning 13 effigies of Guy Fawkes. So Guy Fawkes was one of the members. You might argue perhaps not one of the leading or brightest members, but anyhow, one of the members of the famous gunpowder plot, a, a plot to blow up the Houses of Parliament. Guy Fawkes and, and a bunch of other Catholic conspirators were trying to overturn the Protestant state. Um, Guy Fawkes was arrested guarding the explosives, barrels of gunpowder in the basement of the Houses of Parliament. And you might say in, in any Scooby-Doo episode, the, the the one of the bad guys who's left holding the burning stick of dynamite when the police show up is probably not the smartest one of the gang. 
So I, I will just say that about Guy Fawkes. Um, meanwhile, th- this has been a sort of a strangely familiar bit of anti-Catholic rhetoric by the, by by Britain and British society ever since. Every 5th of November is the day that we put an effigy of a person called Guy on top of a bonfire and light fireworks and celebrate and eat marshmallows and drink hot chocolate and drink beer and kind of it's happy times. And there are, I mean, by the way, we should not make light of the fact that there are still parts of British society where the anti-Catholic kind of bigotry is not very far below the surface. But we just have this weird, superficially harmless habit of burning the effigy of a Catholic fall guy every November the 5th. And, you know, part of our broad-minded and multicultural approach here in England. I don't know what to say. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because I remember in many, 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 many years ago, it happened to be on 5th of November that I was in the London Eye for the first time. And I was, you know, not knowing the context. I was amazed looking around me going, my God, what a great place. Look at all these fireworks, demonstrations all over and bonfires and things. It was something. Oh, well, Jack is really happy that that Queenie, who, you know, had had wanted a family of her own all her life uh, and that and he was worried that as a Hebrew scholar would turn out to be an old maid, has finally gotten married, you know, in her somewhat older age. And, and he'd, he'd always hoped that she'd have lots of children of her own, you know, given the care that she had given him. And now he thinks, you know, that she's happy. Um, and and he's, I think he's kind of following that thought to himself that, well, he's happy, wants her to have lots of kids, but but wait, you know, she's married to this old gray-haired admiral. Well, well could he? Or could it be? Could it? And <laughs> he's kind of looking to Stephen as a physician, as an explanation. And Stephen, you know, rather than just reply medically to uh, to Jack, replies in opera. Yeah. So we, we get a little bit of Italian. Possibilissima, meaning the most possible. Hey, says Jack. Possibile la cosa è naturale, sang Stephen in a harsh, creaking tone, quite unlike his speaking voice, which was not disagreeable. E se sezuana vuol possibilissima, he sang discordantly but near enough to Figaro to be recognized. I'm like, really obscure quote. We, we know Patrick O'Brien loves the marriage of Figaro. This is a little bit of dialogue in opera terms. It's recitative. It's just kind of sung dialogue, if you like. It's not a great aria. It's not a famous tune. I can't believe that anybody would carry in their heads the, the notes and the chord changes behind this particular bit of recit because it's like, but it's absolutely... Um, Susanna, the maid, and the countess, and Figaro, the gardener, plotting how they might be able to play a little mm, deception, verging on practical joke, verging on seduction of the errant count. And they're not speaking about exactly the same thing that Stephen and Jack are talking about with the Admiral and with Queenie, but it's it's pretty close. Possibile la cosa? E naturale? Possibile! Naturale! Naturalissima! E se Susanna vuol, possibilissima. una volta. Oh, già finito. And, and Jack is really, really dumbfounded by this. Really? Really? Said Jack with intense interest. And I, I don't think he knows where to go. He's, a, he's a, as we know, he's a man of warm animal spirits. And you know, speculating about procreation is, is not outside of his wheelhouse. But then on the other hand, Mozart and music is not outside of his wheelhouse either. He's fascinated by this, but he decides to let the discussion turned back to music and suggests that perhaps Stephen should try that particular piece of music as a, as a duet 
I, I'm really not sure that they would have sung the recitative as a duet. It would be a very, very boring and piecemeal duet. But perhaps they could sing Porgy Amor, the, the aria that comes straight before it. So as Jack's talking about all this and, you know, playing this piece of music together, Jack realizes that his promotion came along right after Queenie joined the Admiral. And, you know, whereas he had thought that his promotion came from his honorable wounds, he now believes that it was all Queenie, just as he believes that Queenie is responsible for his next piece of good news. The Sophie, he announces to Stephen, has an independent cruise down the French and Spanish coasts. Yeah. And, and Stephen says, well, is that a good thing? <laughs> Jack, and Jack replies, yes, yes, very good. No more convoy duty, you understand. No more being tied to a lubberly parcel of sneaking rogues, merchants creeping up and down the sea. The French and their Spaniards, their trade, their harbours, their supplies... These are to be our objects. Lord Keith was very earnest about the great importance of destroying their commerce. And as we heard earlier on, Keith was famous for liking a bit of prize money. Um, He was very particular about it indeed, continues Jack, as important as your great fleet actions, says he, and so very much more profitable. The Admiral took me aside and dwelt upon it at length. He is a most acute, far-sided commander. Not a Nelson, of course, but quite out of the ordinary. I'm glad Queenie has him. I, I, I really like this, first of all, reminder of just how much Nelson is worshipped by Jack. And this is, remember, this is all before Trafalgar. Nelson was already a really, really prestigious and successful um, captain, probably a rear admiral by now. And it's also a little reminder of that Jack's generosity. He, he doesn't say, how I admire Nelson. He says, I'm so glad that Queenie has got this guy who is Nelson-like. Yes. And it's a really nice little, you know, touchingly selfless little friendship gesture back towards Queenie there. Well, Jack's really excited about being under no specific orders, having this independent command, and the opportunity for prize money. And and I suspect the crew is going to be very excited given their reaction, you know, momentary reaction to the Norwegian cat being a prize. Yeah. And and we also see the reaction of that Marine sentry that's posted outside Jack's door and is always hearing what's going on in the cabin. <laughs> He's quite taken with this. He thinks it's a great idea. And Stephen asks Jack if he's very attached to money. And Jack says, you know, yes, he loves it passionately. He's always been poor and he longs to be rich. And, you know, the sentry outside the door is nodding right along in yeah, unison. Yeah. And, and Jack says that his father was also poor but very open-handed with Jack, you know, giving him a 50-pound-a-year allowance as a midshipman, which was very handsome, but but that his father really couldn't 
ever persuade his banker, Mr. Hoare, to pay it to Jack after the first quarter. And, and, hmm. and I, you know, I had to pause here going, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you can't persuade your banker to pay out your money. Why not just sort of say, you know, the dog ate my checkbook here. Um, you know, I, I kind of wondered if Jack's father wasn't pulling a bit of a fast one, you know, and getting credit for his promised generosity, which he never actually delivers after one small payment here. <laughs> and it, it's it's funny, a little interesting reference to Jack's father. And I, I'm I'm looking at this thinking, oh, we expected to just say, well, Jack's father was trying to be generous and sometimes it didn't quite work out. And maybe that was all that was intended. But if we look a little bit ahead and know, first of all, something about the way General Aubrey is going to be characterized in the later books, and also something about the way we know Patrick O'Brien slash Russ's father-son relationships had worked out, that is to say, not necessarily very successfully. Maybe there's a little hint of that, and we might come back to this connection between Jack and his father and Jack's reliability uh, in later books. Anyhow, while all this is going on, two bells strike and they get ready to go join the gun room for dinner as their guests. And we get a nice little description of where the gun room is and how it doesn't contain guns. Um, Dylan, the first lieutenant, who is the president of the mess, as it were, in the gun room, is wealthy by naval standards. So the wine that he's serving is pretty good. He has a sucking pig served up, which, by the way, you can get a discussion of in that great book, Lobscouse and Spotted Dog. As a captain sitting down to dinner, Jack knows that he has got, as as O'Brien says, he's got to give the tone. He's got to set the level of the conversation and set the mood. Um, But he's pretty tired of all of the deference and everybody hanging on every word that he says. For somebody who's used to ordinary conversation, this is setting a pretty high bar for Jack to maintain this high level of kind of genteel but inconsequential talk. Everybody treats everything he says as right. Everybody is quiet and polite. And only Dylan, who is the gunroom host, tries a little sort of uninitiated small talk. And Mike, I remember our friend Jeremy way back in episode seven telling us that he really loved this next phrase. It was the pig, says O'Brien. It was the pig that saved this melancholy feast. So here here comes something important. Here comes uh, a sight gag, uh, a joke around a dinner, and also a joke involving something going in somebody's lap that we're going to have to come back to later on in the book. It was the pig, anyway, that saved this melancholy feast, impelled by a trip on the part of the steward that coincided with a sudden lurch on the part of the Sophie. It left its dish at the door of the gunroom and shot into Moet's lap. In the subsequent roaring and hullabaloo, everyone grew human again, remaining natural long enough for Jack to reach the point he had been looking forward to since the beginning of dinner. So, Jack's been looking forward to this. We're looking forward to many more comedy occasions in dinners. But meanwhile, we're going to get some news about what's coming here. Yeah, Jack, you know, while everybody's in good spirits and and now talking more normally here, you know, Jack begs Dylan's indulgence for speaking of a service matter at table and tells him all that the Admiral has given them a cruise down to Cape Now, uh, Cape of the Ship, I think, literally, if we translate the Spanish there. Um, So, you know, there's a long way down the French and Spanish coast. And and Jack adds, I've prevailed upon Dr. Matron to stay aboard, to sew us up when the violence of the king's enemies happens to tear us apart. And, and everyone is cheering, you know, huzzay and well done and hear him topping news. Good. Hear him. You know, O'Brien says they all said more or less together and they look so pleased. 
there was so much candid friendliness on their faces that mm. Stephen was intensely moved. Jack goes on, Lord Keith was delighted when I told him, said he envied us extremely that he had no physician in the flagship and was amazed when I told him of the gunner's brains. Why, he called for his spyglass to take a look at Mr. Day taking the sun on the deck and wrote out the doctor's orders in his own hand, which is something I have never heard of in the service before. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of stunned myself here in reading this going, wait a minute. There was just this announcement of this huge cruise, the opportunity for prize money. And here's everybody focused on Stephen. Yeah. Here's the Admiral's reaction. The Admiral's focused on this. And, and, and we've got, you know, earlier Stephen was promising Jack, you know, in the morning, you're going to see the gunner's brains. And we're all like, yeah. And pfft, you know, it goes right by the board. We never hear anything about it. But here in, you know, kind of second person, uh, as something that happened earlier before, we're now finding out that, whoa, there was this operation, this incredible operation, which is, you know, slightly different than we might have gotten with the Russell Crowe alert, right? Yeah. Huh. So the gunner seems to be doing fine. We hear that he's walking about on the deck. And it wouldn't be a happy, upbeat moment in Patrick O'Brien if there wasn't somebody or something to undercut it. And on this occasion, the, the thing that's going to undercut it is Stephen. He's looking down very modestly, and he, he's kind of not sure what to do with himself while everybody's singing, Jose, Jose. Um, none of them, they say, had ever heard such a, such a thing as an admiral writing out an order by hand. They order up three bottles of port to, to wet the order, and Stephen says, there is only one thing I do not care for. This foolish insistence upon the word surgeon. Do hereby appoint you surgeon. Take upon you the employment of surgeon, together with such allowances for wages and victual for yourself as is usual for the surgeon of the said sloop. It is a false description. And a false description is anathema to the philosophic mind. And this is very typical, Stephen. It's lovely, isn't it? It's a half-joking, half-self-deprecating, half-curmudgeonly, half-ungrateful, oh, typical him. Um, he's not going to get the last word, though, is he, Mike, about this idea of false descriptions? No, no. Well, you know, while he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm not a surgeon, I'm a physician, you know, Dylan says, you know, it may be anathema to you, these false descriptions, but, you know, the service just loves it. The service revels in false descriptions. And, and everybody takes turns kind of giving examples to Stephen. You know, Dylan says, you know, a sloop is a one-mass fore-and-aft rigged vessel, but in the Navy, she's ship-rigged with three masts. And Astor says, well, the Sophie is a brig with two masts. And, and O'Brien writes, he held up two fingers in case a landsman might not fully comprehend so great a number. Uh, but he continues, you know, she became a sloop when Captain Aubrey came aboard because a brig is commanded by a lieutenant. Well, Jack joins in. He says, well, you know, he's called captain, but but really he's only a master and commander. And the purser points out that the gun deck has no guns, only sleeping crew members. The spar deck has no spars, that the actual gun deck is called the upper deck, and that the Sophie with her square mainsail you know, that we've heard so much about isn't a brig, but really sort of a snow or a hermaphrodite. <laughs> And James Dillon gets to put a button on all of this. No, no, my dear sir, said James Dillon. Never let a mere word grieve your heart. We have 
nominal captain servants who are in fact midshipmen. We have nominal able seamen on our books who are scarcely breached. They're a thousand miles away and still at school. We swear we have not shifted any backstays when we shift them continually. And we take many other oaths that nobody believes. No, no, you may call yourself what you please, so long as you do your duty. The Navy speaks in symbols, and you may suit what meaning you choose to the words. So, and first of all, that, that's the end of chapter four. Second of all, I love the fact that yeah, Dylan keeps on kind of knocking on the door of being the, the, the narrator hero of this story in a couple of moments. And this is him sort of putting a little kind of bow on this whole conversation about false or customary descriptions that aren't quite what they seem. And we started out the chapter with a bit of obfuscation about the terminology and the hierarchy of the Navy. And we're finishing the chapter, Mike, with that same little bit of obfuscation here pointed out for us by James Dillon. Yeah. And, and it's funny, you know, it sounds like everybody's just having fun here at the very end, but there's, there's some real weighty matters going on in the midst yeah. of this that owes nobody believes in, or, yeah. you know, sort of suiting whatever meaning you choose to words, you know, that can have some serious implications. And, and I'm kind of wondering, you know, is O'Brien signaling us, you know, let's watch for the meaning that people give things, the words, the action, the duty. Um, and, you know, this, perhaps this conflict that is, is sort of smoldering inside James Dillon that we pointed to a couple times here. Yeah. I mean, there's a bit of discovery going on here. S Stephen is starting to discover who's actually in charge and what the relationships mean. Um, I think J Dylan, we're learning, doubts who's actually in charge of himself. Um, we've got a potential conflict now between Jack and Dylan. Because remember, previous chapter, we saw Jack and Dylan being highlighted as two very, very similar characters who want the same things. But now, as the Sophie had turned back away from chasing that pirate, Dylan was really, really not happy. We're going to learn later on in the book that even Jack's claim to honourable wounds wasn't what had got him his promotion. We'd learned that it was probably Queenie's influence there. And there's this, uh, this disparity set up, I think, between the, the purity, as he, as he sees it, of James Dillon's own desire for honour and a different kind of desire for honour that, that, that's within Jack as well. Yeah. So, Mike, this, this has been a pretty good chapter. It, it really has been. And, and we've gotten introduced to so many of O'Brien's motifs and tropes and, and yeah. more classical lines. And again, we keep meeting these characters who and, and these references that are set up with O'Brien playing this long ball. I'm, I'm loving that. I'm fascinated, too, to say, gosh, as you said, Ian, we're you know, we're now in chapter four. We have seen a little bit of action. If this were another writer of this kind of fiction, we'd have seen a lot more action. But maybe, just maybe, with this independent cruise, we're setting up for a little bit more action. You know, yeah. I'd love to find out. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to find out whether they could be a bit more successful than they were in the sort of 50-50 successful action against the pirates. I'd love to find out whether our three heroes, Jack, Stephen, and Dylan, can, can continue and how that's all going to work out. I'd love to see what's going to happen as whether Jack and James Dillon are going to part ways or whether they're going to come together and what role you know, action with the enemy is going to play in that. My, I, I think there's only one thing for it. What do you say to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, with all my heart.
Mr. Steven, you know, Dylan says, you know, a sloop is a one mask fore and aft rig vessel. Sorry, <laughs> fore and aft rig. <laughs> All right. Well, Sam, we've got all kinds of outtakes for you this week.